Hello, everyone. This is another uh, episode of Tennis with an Accent. Uh, U.S. Open starts tomorrow, one of the biggest days in tennis. This is Sakib, uh, your host, and I have the pleasure of uh, hosting uh, Matt Zemek, who was here almost a week ago, and he has agreed to come on once again. So that's that's a blessing for the podcast. Welcome, Matt. Thanks for having me back, Sakib. Appreciate it. Uh, absolutely. Pleasure is all uh, for us and the listeners. So how excited are you looking at these draws? Uh, do you want to tackle ATP first and then segue into the WTA? That sounds like a plan. Sure, let's do that. Yeah, let's do that. All right, so before we analyze the draw, uh, the biggest story coming in yesterday was the withdrawal of uh, you know former world number one and 2012 uh, U.S. Open champion Andy Murray. And uh, I just want to know what your thoughts are for this late of withdrawal because it's pretty clear the guy tried, he made the trip, and he waited after the draw. And as a result, uh, a lot of fan bases, and uh, rightfully so in some cases, are upset that this withdrawal should have taken place, say, 24 hours earlier. So Roger Federer could have rightly, you know, sit at the bottom of the draw as the number two seed. And now, uh, I guess, uh, how the schedule works. Marin Cilic has taken that slot, and uh, the top half hasn't been altered at all. Your thoughts? Well, you know, in an ideal world, obviously a player would pull out before the draw is announced. But, uh, you know, Sir Andy Murray, uh, winner of three majors, winner of two Wimbledons, uh, world number one for uh, several months before uh, Nadal uh, supplanted him. You know, he, he has earned the right to be able to wait as long as possible until his body gives him a definite answer in terms of whether or not to play in a major tournament, which, by the way, Murray has not made the semifinals since his 2012 championship. So it's it's obviously a matter of importance for him to be able to do well at this tournament. Uh, it's pretty reasonable to assume that every fiber of his being wanted to be able to play. So uh, enabling Murray to wait as long as possible uh, he should be given that space. He should be given that benefit of the doubt. Um, you know, if he was not certain about whether or not he could play uh, on the morning of the draw on Friday in New York, that 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 is his reasonable conclusion, and the tennis community should give him the benefit of the doubt. The other part to emphasize in this, Sakiv, is that I am personally someone, and I speak as an American on this, because America has a very well-known, within America, uh, collegiate basketball tournament every March, what's called the NCAA tournament. And in that tournament, the seedings are set. Uh, The number one seed plays the number 16 seed in the first round. Eight plays nine. Uh, You know, it's a set system where highest seed plays lower seed and the middle seeds play each other, I personally think that at the major tournaments we should have a set bracketing system where number one plays 128, number two plays 127, and then on toward the middle. So number 64 would play number 65. And I know that most tennis people, this being a global sport, don't agree with that approach. But but I raise that point to illustrate the idea that if we had a set bracketing system, uh, then, you know, it would be easier to just say number three moves up to number two, number four moves up to number three, and then number 129 or whoever lost, uh, whoever was the highest ranked player to lose in the qualies um, could move from the first spot out of the draw into that number 128 slot. But, since tennis has random draws with seedings and rankings scattered all over the place, you know, the fact that Federer's, or excuse me, Murray's number two seed will be replaced by a lucky loser, it, it doesn't have the same effect on a draw because if, if let's say Federer had been the number two seed, he could have gotten a terrible draw. Uh, you know, Murray obviously got a great one, but because of the random nature of a tennis draw, we don't, we can't really say that, oh, being the number two seed would have given Federer a better path. We can, we can say, of course, that he wouldn't have had to meet Nadal until the final. That much is true. 
but in terms of the rest of it, uh, we can't really say for sure. So that that uncertainty should also minimize any anger uh, with Andy Murray uh, about his decision to pull out after the draw was announced. It's it it we can't guarantee, uh, except for you know the Federer Nadal final that um, his decision would have had a profound ripple effect on the whole draw. It only would have affected, for sure, whether Federer Nadal could meet in the semifinals or the final. That's the only thing we know for sure. Uh, I agree with uh, most of you, most of what you have said. I would also like to add, as a Federer fan, you know, like many out there, I mean, I try to objective when I'm doing this podcast. I have the sentiment why this uh, announcement did not come before the draw, but at the same time, similar things happen in Wimbledon. When some of the guys like Dolgopolov and uh, uh, some other folks entered the draw, they were like not fully fit, and there was a big discussion about how first round payoff is huge, and then even getting in the ranking points are there at stake. So it's, after all, it's a professional sport. You're out there all your, all by yourself, and rankings and money, everything is you know what a lot of players are driving for. So considering that, I don't really hold it against Murray because you know after all, he's just looking after his interests. Yeah, but as a media and fans and the global TV audience would want Federer Nadal final, and if they were projected in other halves, that would have been a very good story. But at the same time, uh, if you're Dolgopolov or if you're Robin Hassa or Andy Murray, if you just want to play and you're kind of still not fully uh, physically fit, I think you can't hold against any of these guys because they're professionals. In the end, they're uh, not Murray, but these guys are putting, you know, like making a living out there. So even if Murray's a uh, uh, interest here was just to play and go deep and, you know, secure some points for semis or quarters. Uh, I think it's all fair. Uh, at the same time, as a Federer fan, I'm a little upset, but, you know, I try to rationalize by being in Murray's shoes. He really wanted to play at that point. He doesn't care how this benefits Nadal or Federer or Dimitro or anyone. He's out there for himself, and rightfully so. It's a, you know, man-to-man sport, and he did what was the best decision. And I know a lot of people have this thing, uh, how can you not know this 24 hours earlier? But then people in the past have taken ice baths, injections, and, you know, they've made that trip to the court. So the only thing for Andy Murray fans is it's a good thing that, you know, uh, in the end, if this is something that's going to be permanent, probably rest is uh, the best measure if he's not going to go under the knife. So Well, and and, and I give I have two, two notes on the heels of your excellent points. One is that, you know, Health situations can and do change quickly, and Federer fans should be cognizant of this because in 2012 at Wimbledon, we might remember that Federer had back problems in the first set of his fourth round match against Xavier Melise, and he went to the locker room for training, and it really looked like his Wimbledon was about to end. But he got enough treatment, and Melise, who was always, you know, a highly erratic player, uh, committed enough unforced errors in important moments that Federer was able to dig out that match in four sets. And then when he played the quarterfinals against Yuzhny, you know, he didn't get a lot of resistance. And then by the time he met Djokovic in the semifinals, you know, he, physically he didn't show signs of the weaknesses that were existing against Melise. And, you know, he was able to make it through the whole tournament and win it. That's That's point one. The other point here is that Federer would have been the number two seed for this tournament if he had merely shown up in Cincinnati and taken a 6-love, 6-1 loss. He could have just shown up, played a match. Heck, he could have just played one point and then retired from a round of 32 match, and that would have given him enough rankings points to pass Murray for the number two seed. So we were even in this position to begin with, with Murray being the number two seed, only because Federer refused to get cheat rankings points in Cincinnati. He insisted on not entering the tournament uh, because he knew that it would just be a manipulative move uh, for in search of rankings points, not an honest attempt to win the tournament. And Murray is really doing that same thing. He could go through the motions, make an appearance, maybe grab some points, but he doesn't want to do that, and there's a certain competitive integrity in that. But So the emphasis is making the connection between Federer in Cincinnati and Murray at the U.S. Open. I know that Federer didn't have as much advance time uh, to make any sort of decision because he got injured you know, just before Cincinnati was starting. That That's obviously a difference. 
But nevertheless, Federer could have thought about his seating and just made an appearance in Cincinnati, but he didn't even want to do that. And it, w- it would have been very easy for him to, to make an appearance, lose a match in, you know, 45 minutes, but he didn't want to do that. So that has to be kept in mind when discussing this particular point. Yeah, I think there's a, so these are all good discussions because there's too much knowledge floating around even at, at our level, you know, uh, the fan level. And then uh, these are all like valid points and uh, I don't think there's a right or wrong answer. Uh, after having said that, let's uh, quickly look at the draw. Uh, for Rafa Nadal, who's, uh, you know, we've discussed in the last podcast, uh, he's not looking like the same player confidence-wise uh, as he was in the, you know, sunshine double, that, that hardcore swing in March. Uh, do you see any challenges uh, in the first week uh, of the draw that has been panned out for Nadal? Well, uh, you know, Richard Gasquet could be his third-round opponent, and I've watched enough Nadal-Gasquet matches to know that Gasquet is not going to remotely threaten him, you know, if, assuming Nadal is, you know, reasonably healthy, which he has, in fact, been uh, this year. Uh, you know, the only threat I see for Nadal uh, before a potential semifinal against Federer is, Grigor Dimitrov in, in the quarterfinals. And we all remember their semifinal in Australia. It, you know, if Dimitrov really carries the momentum and confidence that he developed in Cincinnati to New York, you know, he could he could obviously take out Nadal. I see Tomas Burdick uh, in, in Nadal's section, so that could potentially be a fourth-round match. He could also play Fabio Fanini. Um People, some, some people have said, you know, Fardini could be a threat. I would counter that by saying that this is not 2015. The year Fardini, uh, came from a two-set deficit to beat Nadal at the U.S. Open. The players are in very different situations and circumstances, uh, this year. And Fardini does not have the lethal serve, um, that can hit Nadal off the court. And, and, and that 2015 match was a lot more about Nadal's fitness and his confidence. Uh, one can say that Nadal is not in great form right now, but Fanini, you know, does not offer significant indications that, that he's going to be a threat on hard courts. I mean, his, his clay court chops are un, unmistakable, but he has not carried that over to hard courts this year. So, I'm just not seeing a threat other than Dimitrov um, for Nadal on the road to the semifinals. Okay, I, I agree with most of those assertions, but I just somehow have a funny feeling. Uh, again, not going by the recent form, I think Thomas Burdick, uh, you know, just merely looking at, you know, what he's doing on social media, and just, I, I get a feeling that this guy is kind of playing more relaxed. I think the start of the year wasn't really good for him. And he's tried almost every, you know, single coaching move in the last few years. And, uh, yeah, most of us do believe the ship has sailed for him to be a contender. But I somehow think uh, he's playing a little more free tennis at the moment. The results don't kind of stack up. Uh, I expect him to be there uh, to play Nadal on, uh, I think, Labor Day Monday. And I think that can be a tricky match. And another match I would want to keep an eye on is young American Tommy Paul. He's had a decent America U.S. Open series. Uh, the American hardcore swing, and if he wins his first match against the Japanese uh, Taro Daniel, I think him and Nadal Thursday night second down match into the light. That could be uh, an interesting match if Nadal uh, is still, you know, struggling with some confidence. I don't expect Paul to beat him, but that could be a workout that Nadal needs. That's true. That could be one of those uh, four-set, three-hour matches that helps play Nadal into form. Absolutely. Dimitrov is the one man you said, you know, who is Nadal's uh, potential uh, quarterfinal opponent. And we spoke uh, on length about how his resurgence could be timely. And, you know, this, again, uh, is an excellent draw uh, for Dimitra. But then in the past, he's made these kind of draws very tricky by his, you know, form. Uh, do you see any potential uh, problem for Dimitra uh, to living up to his seeding of seven and making that uh, quarterfinal against Nadal or Burdick or whoever comes from there? Yeah, I, I love Dimitrov's draw in terms of being able to get that match with Nadal in the quarters. The only guy I see as a real threat is Gael Monfils, uh, who, you know, did play very spirited, resilient tennis in Montreal, the kind of tennis that 
we don't always see from him. Uh, you know, the other seated players in Dimitrov's section are David Goffin, who clearly is still far below 100% physically after that injury at the French Open. And then the other seed is Pablo Cuevas, who, you know, has gone steadily downward after his encouraging clay court season when he finally reached his first career Masters semifinal in Madrid and, and made the quarterfinals in Monte Carlo. Uh, the, the, Monfils stands out as the only seeded player, in my mind, who can give Dimitrov, uh, a significant run. I, I think, I think that really, that section really lines up well for Dimitrov. Now, there could be some tricky matches, which against, uh, I agree with you, Dimitrov should start and end as favorite against Rublev if he comes through, uh, with the clash against Bethany and then, uh, a German qualifier Steve, uh, I think he's someone who's, uh, been in red hot form. I expect him to come out, come out of that uh, Cuevas Jumor section and play Dimitrov on the Labor Day weekend. But then I think Dimitrov, at, at current form and confidence, you're right, has too much firepower to go through these guys. Maybe he drops a set somewhere, and uh, come Monfils time, that can be a tricky match if, if Gael is playing really well. I would so, agree. Uh, yeah, let's move uh, ahead into the draw, and uh, this is the next section where uh, Roger Federer lives. And uh, no news about his back and his practices are always, you know, uh, very light workouts. I've seen those two or three times in person. Uh, I think all the hard work is done the way he comes to these tournaments. And uh, he's, his style is very different than, you know, someone like Nadal or Burdick who was spanking the ball there and even on practice courts. So, TFO, they played in Miami. It was a close match. Uh, what do you see of Federer's first few rounds? And uh, can he keep the date uh, for a later round here? Well, uh, Federer did have the experience of playing TFO in Miami, and I remember that their first set was extremely close. So Federer got a good look at TFO's game, TFO's serve. So that, that should help him to manage that match relatively efficiently. And the, the important point to note with TFO is that while he did beat Alexander Zverev in Cincinnati, and, you know, full credit to TFO, and then that, that accomplishment could certainly give him confidence and, and a better understanding of his game. Let's just offer some perspective by noting that Zverev had just won not only Montreal, but Washington the week before. He was exhausted, and frankly, he needed to lose that match to get adequate rest to be able to regroup for the U.S. Open. So that, that simply has to be placed in context. It was a, it was a good, solid I would say even necessary forward step for TFO to take in his career, uh, but it shouldn't be seen as an indication that he's ready to take down other giants, especially in a best-of-five context. I think that Federer needed matches that he can get through without too much drama in the first week so that he can manage his back, not feel that he has to play 100 percent, you know, they have, that he has to invest every last ounce of energy. I think he fundamentally, you know, has what he wants, that he can get through uh, the first week without too much of a problem. You know, Feliciano Lopez is the seed in his most immediate uh, chunk of the draw, so that could be a, a third-round match. Lopez has, you know, ever since he got injured at Wimbledon, you know, he's just lost steam this year. I think that Fernando Verdasco will wind up being Federer's uh, third-round opponent. And, you know, Verdasco has a deserved reputation as a player who can be dangerous on a given day. Uh, but Federer has handled him at the U.S. Open in the past, and, and, I, and I think that, you know, he can manage with similar, uh, you know, straightforwardness this time around. So as long as Federer gets through the first week without too much physical strain, then he'll be physically prepared for what I think will be his big test before the semifinals, a match with either Nick Kyrgios or Sam Querrey. Uh, either one could be tricky uh, Actually, in the round. Uh, Matt, Sam Querrey has been moved out from this draw now. His place has been taken by Philip Kohlschreiber because of the seeding arrangement. So Philip Kohlschreiber got bumped to a seed, and uh, I'm looking at the draw. Uh, it's him and Nick Kyrgios for a projected uh, third-round date, and the winner takes on uh, Roger Federer or Lopez or Verdasco in the fourth round. So well, that, that, well, that, 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 that cements 
that cements Kyrgios as his opponent because Cole Schreiber is notoriously inconsistent for one thing, but the other thing is that, you know, he was originally slated to play John Isner in the third yeah. round of the U.S. Open, and we all know the history about that, that <laughs> Cole Schreiber has knocked Isner out of the third round at the U.S. Open multiple times in the past. Uh, Kyrgios is a much worse draw for the Germans, so that, that should put Kyrgios, uh, in Federer's path in the fourth round, and I would, I would simply say that if, if that match does indeed happen, it's the difference between best of three and best of five, that Kyrgios is a good sprinter, he can mm. take over with his serve in a, in a quick match, and, uh, win a couple tiebreakers and go home. In a five-set match, uh, the ability to, Win tiebreakers is still important, but, um, you know, can he win three tiebreakers? Uh, that, that might be his needed formula. And so the margin of error definitely shrinks for him. And that, that's why Federer would deserve the edge. I mean, it's, look, we, you know, in mind, mindful of what happened in Miami, uh, when they played three razor close sets, it's obviously within Kyrgios' ability and capacity. Uh, to to win a close match, but uh, he probably has to win in three sets, definitely in four. I certainly wouldn't fancy his chances uh, if that match goes to a fifth. Yeah, I know. Like a lot of times, these matches don't live up to the billing. And uh, I don't have many stats to back up, but just being a pure student of the game, sometimes uh, I've also noticed there are certain players uh, that don't show up for the competition, but just show up for that one player that you root for or one player who's huge. And in that regard, I just see. Nick is some someone who's I think, in my opinion, uh, will always show up, and someone like a Federer or Djokovic is across the net. And uh, I I know what you're saying totally holds uh, ground that you know the, the longer the match goes, Federer is too skilled to find a way to you know combat the lack of endurance that Kyrgios has at this stage. But at the same time, this can be a shootout. This can be another few tie breaks, and if uh, Kyrgios somehow gets the lead, then I think he has the firepower to finish that match. But uh, do you uh, see Kyrgios and Coach Schreiber, is that a match that's uh, going to determine Roger Federer's opponent? Or uh, now, since Sam Querrey is out of the conversation, you're giving Nick Kyrgios the full go to at least keep uh, his round of 16 seeding? Yeah. I, I thought that Querrey would, would have beaten Kyrgios in a match if they had met. And I would base that – I based that prediction precisely on Querrey's strong Wimbledon showing when he won – uh, some extended matches against Kevin Anderson and then Andy Murray, and he gave a good fight against Marin Cilic in the semifinals before finally losing. I mean, Query's court coverage has definitely improved the past few years. He his his stamina uh, has been noticeably better than it was at an earlier point in his career. And Query's Query's improvements in recent years mirror those of Stan Wawrinka, not to the same extent or on the same scale, but they mirror them in terms of another ATP player learning later in his career how to better manage matches. You know, that that the physical, a player's, an athlete's physical gifts might be supreme at 23, 24, 25, but the mental side of the game and an understanding of how to marry one's physical talents with mental toughness and more tactical acuity, uh, those various pieces often don't come together until age 28, 29, 30. So we're seeing that in the case of Query, and I thought that in a match against Kyrgios, he'd be able to uh, put that stamina and put that uh, increased tennis IQ to very good use. But... Cole Schreiber is not the same player. He has not made that the kind of growth that Query has demonstrated in recent years. So I'd have to favor Kyrgios, uh, and I think that his power can blast through Cole Schreiber, who just doesn't have the same reputation uh, for finding solutions in the middle of matches. And he's also been injury plagued for the last year and a half, Cole Schreiber. So. Uh, you said better uh, at managing matches. I think that's a great segue to introduce the next seed in the uh, lower section of Roger Federer, Robert, Robert Batista Agu. This is a guy who is a silent assassin. You know, like we all kind of talk about him, and he's becoming. I don't know. David Federer is still a big comparison, but he's living up to the seeding on most weeks. 
and if the top guys are not there, he cleans, he takes the titles. So how good is this guy? And uh, he's my pick to come out. I think he, he's going to get the better of Juan Martin Del Potro, what we have seen so far uh, this year. Yeah, I would agree. I, the, you know, what, the the thing about Delpo is that he his his fitness um, did not look very good in Cincinnati. He got uh, visibly affected by the heat and the humidity in Ohio in his loss to Dimitrov, um, and and he his shots just have not come together uh, during the hard court summer or even at most points in in his season. Um, Delpo beat Bautista Agut a year ago on hard court at the Rio Olympics in Brazil, but th- this year, if they do meet in the third round, they, they'd be meeting under very different circumstances. So I'd have to favor Bautista Agut, who is, you know, much more of an Iron Man. Um, in many ways, Bautista Agut is, is kind of like the Nikolai Davidenko of this decade. Um, plays a lot That's of tournaments. Very good comparison, yeah. Plays a lot of tournaments, just has a very compact, machine-like game. Nothing sexy, but just relentlessly consistent. You know, get, gets in a in a rhythm, hits the ball hard and flat to the corners, uh, and and just relies on that consistency to be his best ally. Um, given that Delpo is not fully fit, and given that Dominic Team. Uh, a, a below average hardcourt player is in his section. You know, I think that the time is right for Bautista Agut to make his first major quarterfinal. You know, he's been extremely good at reaching the round of 16 over the past 8 to 10 majors, something like that. Um, so expecting him in the round of 16 is a pretty good bet, and this time he'll face a, a top 8 seed that, that he can definitely manage. So I think the time is right for him to finally get a major quarterfinal. His his career, his resume, and his consistency um, merit that achievement. But, of course, you don't deserve something until you do it. I think it's time that, that uh, RBA is finally going to get it done. Okay, I, I'm going to slightly take a different path here while I agree, you know, uh, and we both are on the same page for RBA. I think Dominic Team's Achilles heel, uh, the Schwartzman uh, match is definitely an exception. Has been like big servers like the Andersons around it. So I think he's an underrated hardcore player. His ranking kind of propels him and people accept, expect more. I think he has a clear path. I mean, if uh, someone takes Ivo Karlovic out like uh, Manorino, I see uh, Dominic team uh, battling Robert Batista Agut for a place in the quarters. And because Batista Agut doesn't possess a big weapon, I think team is someone, if he gets that far, for, for me, he makes the quarterfinals. But then it's a big if. If Karlovic comes away, things can change. Team could be out on, you know, Labor Day weekend. Certainly possible. So let's. Uh, this was the top half. So I think uh, we agree on most of the matches. And uh, uh, Roger Federer and uh, Thomas Burdick and Rafa Nadal. These are some like big names who live up there. And now let's do segue into the bottom half. Now Sam Query uh, takes Marin Cilic's spot, and he. He's someone who opens uh, against uh, Gilles Simon, and his projection to his third round is uh, again Russian Karen Hachinov or Escobedo, the young American. Who do you see coming out of this section? Is Aquari still the man who comes out with his uh, new look draw? In Aquari Hachinov third round match, I I take Query. I mean Query, the the forward strides uh, that he has made in his game. Uh, give him a definite advantage, and not just an advantage. I, I, I hasten to say, I would also say they give him the benefit of the doubt. Um, as we know, tennis players uh, can l- struggle for a very long time uh, in terms of figuring out how to play. And when I say figuring out how to play, it's not one thing. It's not the technique on the strokes. It's not just. Uh, the court coverage. It's not just the mental game. It's holistic. It's everything included. And once tennis players gain concrete awareness, not only conceptually, but once they successfully apply some lessons and principles, you know, they do evolve. And, I, and that's one of the great things about this sport, that when play, when players see uh, what they are capable of, they then have increased success, and they and they often sustain it. And I think Query 
while having a disappointing loss in Cincinnati, I think that the conditions there got to him. His shirt was basically soaked 10 minutes into uh, his loss to Adrian Manorino. Uh, I think that in New York, as long as the conditions are not particularly sticky and oppressive, that he should be able to get through the first week and, and reaffirm his place as a tennis player who, you know, has learned how to put more pieces together in his career. Yeah, I agree. I think Sam Curry is someone who's definitely, after putting a lot of miles on, has figured out, you know, something new on how to advance further into these uh, meaningful tournaments. And uh, his round of 16 opponent could be Misha Zverev, Benoit Pair, and or John Isner. So Query Isner, round of 16 match or a place in the quarters is something I think would give, uh, would be a night match, and I think American tennis uh, could use something like that on a grand stage. No, no question about it. And uh, quickly advancing through the next section here is uh, Jack Sock is living at the top of uh, the bottom section here, and uh, his projected uh, third-round opponent could be in-form Jills Miller. But again, this is hardcore tennis. Miller, I think, played his best tennis in grass. And then uh, there are no not very dangerous names, and obviously Bernard Tomic is there, but nobody knows what kind of state of mind uh, this guy has right now. So it's fair to say if uh, the weather is not too hot, uh, Jack Sock has to finally deliver on some potential. I mean, this guy has a huge game, and uh, my co-host Anand is big on him. He's not here today, but uh, this is a chance for Sock to at least exercise some demons at majors and uh, make a deep run uh, into the second week. Now, I am not high on Jack Sock going into this tournament. I, I, I think that there is reason to be optimistic, a lot of reason, actually, Uh coming out of Indian Wells when Sock made the semifinals, but he just hasn't carried that form through the year. And I know we had a clay court season where Sock is never going to be particularly imposing, not on European clay. Houston clay, yes, but Houston clay is not European clay. Uh, Sock, Sock looked really worn down uh, in both Montreal and especially in Cincinnati, and it just seems that his tank is running on empty, and I would not be surprised at all if uh, Jordan Thompson picked him off in the first round. Uh, a third-rounder against Mueller would be very interesting in the sense that Mueller has also struggled ever since his extremely impressive Wimbledon. And so neither Sock nor Mueller uh, played well in the Canada-Cincinnati double stack. That That would be a match where one player is more likely to lose than win, meaning that the, the match would be decided more by what the losing player did poorly than what the winning player did correctly. Uh, the, the, the bottom line about that portion of the draw is that Alexander Zverev uh, got, a, got a very good uh, series of opponents to play through the first four rounds. Yeah, absolutely. I think uh, I was just looking at that draw. Kevin Anderson is the only man that stands out who might uh, you know, give some resistance to uh, Sasha Zverev. And then there is a Borna Chorich and uh, the ever-mercurial Ernest Gulbis is in there. Uh, who knows what to expect from him. So Sasha Zverev seems to be, you know, heavy favorite to come out of that. So we don't really have to spend much energy on his draw because uh, I don't see any upsets. Of course, anything can happen, but uh, he clearly uh, seems to be the favorite coming out of uh, that section. Now, that brings us to the last section of the men's draw, where Joe Willy Sanga lives at the top, and then uh, Marin Cilic, at the very bottom uh, name, has replaced Andy Murray uh, as, uh, you know, the rightful, not the rightful, but where the second seed would live. And uh, there are a few good names in there, like Tanasi Kokinakis, and uh, David Ferrer with this uh, new racket is in some sort of a resurgence. He's there in the, in the last quarter. But uh, do you see anyone uh, besides Sanga or uh, Chilich coming out from this uh, bottom section? Well, the, the the big story is that with Chilich moving into Murray's seating spot, I think he becomes the favorite to to get out of uh, out of this quarter of the draw. I I have thought that it would be pure chaos. Um, with Murray there in, in, in the two seat at the, at the bottom of, uh, that quarter because even if Murray had played, the, the, the reality of just going cold for a month and a half and then having to rev up the engines, that, that did not lend itself, even in best of five tennis, uh, 
to to a good run for Murray. And I know that he did pick himself up at the French Open uh, after a ho-hum clay season and and reached the semifinals. Um, but it, what what he went through at Wimbledon, where he was in visible distress and he was just tossing drop shots uh, to Sam Querrey at the end of that match, that seemed uh, like a more significant uh, health concern uh, than what he had faced uh, during the clay season in the month of May. So to be able to just immediately resume tennis after uh, a month and a half of downtime, that uh, the abrupt nature of the transition suggested that Murray was not going to get in deep into the second week. So Chilich, uh, though also dealing with an injury concern, it, it, it's a more it's not as structural as the hip injury that Murray's going through. I mean, Chilich simply couldn't run comfortably, but now that now that he can, you know, the rest of his body is not in a position of of uncertainty. He you know he knows. That the mechanics of his shots can still work. Murray had to doubt that uh, because of the inability to get up the rotation through his body uh, to be able to hit effectively. Chip Chilich didn't have that problem, so I think that Chilich, you know, provided that he gets through his first two or three matches, and plays his way into form, uh, he should he should now definitely emerge as the favorite in that quarter of the draw. Yeah, and then Sangha will always be that guy with the. His name, a lot of unfulfilled potential will always be associated. Not that he hasn't show, showed up at later stages. It's just like uh, this is an opportunity which I think he can uh, fully take advantage of. But at the same time, his year after winning those two titles earlier in the year in the European indoor season hasn't really turned out to be, uh, you know, what it seemed like. And uh, he has some dangerous opponents uh, in Robin Hassa and the young uh, Shapovalov and Steve Johnson. Uh, living in his section, and uh, it'll be interesting to see how Sangha navigates uh, through that draw. Uh, but yeah, Sangha, Chilich, uh, quarterfinal uh, could be, you know, could be what the doctor uh, ordered for this draw because this draw is kind of uh, really depleted. But at the same time, it's a big opportunity for a lot of other names, like uh, Jared Donaldson is there. And uh, one more question, what do you think is going with Luca Pui? This is a guy who made his name last year at the Open. And there's a lot of expectations surrounding his name, but every time we get excited, he puts out uh, an injury or he puts out a performance that, you know, people just, you know, don't want to invest any further. Good question. And I've, I've thought about Pui, and, and the, the answer that immediately comes to mind is that if you recall not just his win over Nadal at Bastards U.S. Open, but also some of his other notable matches from the first half of this season, particularly his uh, his escape over, um, I believe, Pablo Cuevas in the Monte Carlo uh, quarterfinals. Um, Pui has won a lot of important matches to this, to this stage of his career, not by dominating, but by just hanging around, uh, being persistent, and stealing a match in the fifth set. You know, his opponent might flinch on one or two shots, I mean, Nadal did that late in the in in the 2016 U.S. Open fourth round a year ago. Pui seems to just hang around and come from behind late in matches to win them, and it's good to be able to do that and to know that you can do that. But that that can't happen all the time. You know, you, you winning matches late in a, in a comeback fashion. You need to be able to do that every now and then when you're in trouble. But you can't spend full tournaments doing that. And Pui has logged way too much court time uh, in the first half of the 2017 season. The inability to win matches efficiently and in straight sets, that catches up to most tennis players. That you can't play three or four consecutive full-length matches at tournaments week after week and expect to have a full tank mm -hmm. of fitness later in the season. You know, the, the the great players, the big four, you know, they do win matches when they're down. They do win matches when they're not playing great. But then the next match after that, they'll win, you know, two and one in an hour, and they will refresh themselves. And so Pui has to become the player who, you know, if he, if he escapes in the first round, 
then he has to mow down someone, you know, quickly in the in the next match. If if he can take that step, he won't arrive at the second half of a tennis season exhausted. But that that's been the case for him in 2017. So a lot like Jack Sock, Pui is just running on empty, and he just has to be able to win a lot more matches by dominating and fewer matches by having to come back in the third set, uh, you know, after three hours on court. That that's the basic issue with him. Okay, before we make the call, who's going to make the semis? Uh, uh, are there any matches as a pure tennis fan that you are looking forward in the first week that may not just involve a big name, but just a good clash of styles or? A good, a little rivalry out there. Any matches that stand out in the men's draw? Well, because five of the top eleven players uh, with Murray's pullout uh, are not going to be in the tournament, the the quality of of matches in these middle rounds is definitely poorer uh, than it has been in the past. And I had been looking forward to uh, Curios Query. I thought that was going to be a fascinating match. Um, not necessarily because of contrasting styles. They don't really have overly different styles, but because uh, it was a young versus old combination. It was uh, a stamina uh, versus, you know, firepower combination. Um, but now that that match is off the board, you know, the picking become even more slim. Hmm. I would say that a possible second-round matchup of Denis Shapovalov against Joe Willie Sanga that could be a shot maker's paradise, and you could have two guys just throwing haymakers at each other. Uh, it'll be volatile, it'll be messy at times, but probably you'll get, you know, five or six highlight reel shots to the point that it could still be entertaining. It could be entertaining not as a classic embodiment of what tennis is supposed to be, but it would be entertaining in a train wreck kind of sense. Absolutely. Well, I'll add to that, match because... Uh... Uh, the match preceding that, if Shapovalov has to come through, is against uh, the Russian Daniel uh, Medvedev. I think that's a great matchup. If you're the grounds pass, that's, I think, what the grounds pass worth is. You can see that kind of a match on day one. I think Medvedev, to me, is a slight favorite because as good as Shapovalov is, he is the future. Uh, it will be very interesting to see how he's playing a best-of-five set match. And Medvedev, on the other hand, is a little more uh, an established resident in the top, top 100. And the other match, uh, I'm... At a personal level, I'm really interested uh, to keep eyes on is uh, Verdasco Lopez because Verdasco used to be the second best lefty out of Spain for the longest time, and talent is undeniable. But in the last four or five years, the trajectory has changed for both. Philly Lopez has become a more steady resident of, let's say, top 20, 25 uh, rank zone, and Verdasco has kind of drifted away. And they used to be, I'm sure they're still good friends, they used to be doubles partners. So I'm Still not sure what day I'll be going to the Open. If it's Thursday, I want to see that match happen, and I think that's going to be a great match. Well, that since that's in uh, uh, the Federer's section, that will that is going to be played on on a day that Federer plays. Yes, yeah, so that's Thursday. So I'm still deciding what day to go. <laughs> Make your call for the semis before uh, we switch to the women's draw. Uh, we've analyzed it from top to bottom. So who are your four semifinalists in the men's when it's all done and said? Well, before Murray pulled out, I had Pablo Carreño Busta, who was an Indian Wells semifinalist, uh, in the semis from that quarter of the draw. But now with Chilich instead in that quarter, I do think that Chilich will, will make the semis from there. And then Zverev will be his opponent in, uh, one semifinal. And then I know I'm gonna jinx it. But I do think that Roger Federer and Rafael Nadal will play at the U.S. Open for the first time. I think they both got highly manageable draws. Uh, and I would simply reiterate that if Federer played Kyrgios in a best-of-three match, I'd worry about his chances. But over best-of-five, I think that's going to be the defining difference for Federer, provided that his, his health uh, is good enough. If it is, he should be in the semis, and Nadal just has to get past that Dimitrov hurdle in the quarters uh, to be able to set up that dream semifinal. Uh, I agree with uh, most of you what, what you have said, but in my bracket, I just have uh, uh, Rafa Nadal uh, losing to Thomas Burdick, and I know uh, people are going to laugh at me, but I just have a feeling that Burdick can do something at this year's Open. And the other three semifinalists, I, I'm going to go with you. Uh, those those are, those three are locked. I think in my mind, if Federer's back holds up, otherwise, you know, things can turn out different with Kyrgios.
quick analysis of what you see on the WTA side of things. Karolina Peshkova is sitting at the top. Uh, and do you see how do you see her progress? And uh, do you think she can replicate uh, last year's run or even go better this year? I definitely think she can. And I would say that because the U.S. Open is really the tournament where she came of age as a tennis player a year ago. I mean, she did break through in Cincinnati. But the U.S. Open confirmed for her, ah, I can play this game. I can do this. I can move forward with my career. I really can be a good, consistent, top-level player um, when everybody's watching. And that, I think the experience of that, the sensation of that, will guide her and give her a lot of good confidence uh, in this tournament, especially when matches get tight. It's important to remember that the, the turning point for her at that U.S. Open last year was saving match point against Venus Williams in the fourth round. That moment crystallized for her that she had the ability to not only win big matches, but to come through very difficult situations. And that really aided her transformation and accelerated her process of development. I really like her draw. Uh, the next highest seed in her quarter is Svetlana Kuznetsova, who has had a relatively solid season, but has not been able to get past the specific hurdle of major quarterfinals. Kuznetsova has not yet been able to return to a major semifinal. Uh, if Pliskova and Kuznetsova met in the quarterfinals, Pliskova would be the clear favorite. Um, and I don't think there are players in the earlier rounds of her draw who are in particularly good position uh, to pick her off. So I, I really like uh, the draw that uh, Pliskova got. And if she gets into the semifinals against you know any tough players, Elena Spitalina is the uh, highest-seeded opponent she could face. I would like Pliskova's chances in that match. I think the only player in the field with a better chance of winning than Pliskova is Garbina Muguruza, who is simply on fire at the moment. Yeah, I think uh, even in my draw, I think uh, I have Svitolina playing uh, Muguruza, and to me, the winner comes out of that match. Again, you know, Fortnite has to be played, and a lot can happen in between. But uh, I think Elena Svitolina is speaking for something big. And uh, I think she's probably a couple of, you know, big sets away in a big match. So I'm laying her claim, you know, at one of these big titles. But uh, Muguruza, I think something totally changed. Uh, we talked about, I think, couple of weeks ago after Cincy, you know, how that uh, she's a different player since that loss to Mladanovic at Roland Garros. And uh, always uh, the, the knock against her was uh, the consistency, but uh, winning in Cincy, uh, backing her Wimbledon win, I think she's definitely a front runner here. Uh, what do you see of Angie Kerber, first round match against uh, Naomi Osaka? You think there's an upset there? Uh, there's certainly a great chance. Uh, Osaka certainly has the firepower uh, to get the job done, and you know she is. Osaka does seem like a player who, in a few years' time, um, will be much more of a contender uh, within the within the workings of women's tennis. So, uh, a win over Kerber could certainly become a stepping stone moment for her. Uh, it, it, it's hard to see. Kerber winning that match easily. It's not hard to see her winning the match, but it's hard to see how that's going to be a, a routine or easy match for her. There are going to be moments in each set, whether it's two or three, when uh, Osaka certainly has a chance. Whether or not she'll take those chances uh, remains to be seen. But, um, uh, you know, if Kerber can get through that first match, um you know, I you know, she could get through the first week. Um, Kerber, if she can get through that first match, did not get a a, a particularly overwhelming overall draw. Uh, in terms of uh, the the second week in this particular quarter of the draw, um, the possible fourth rounder between Spitalina and Madison Keys. Uh, would be a showcase match. Uh, would definitely be an Ash Stadium match. Hmm. And, uh, it, it would be interesting to see how Spitalina's retrieval game, uh, and Key's first strike game, how they match up against each other and whether the winner of that match would suit Kerber 
uh, or Yelena Ostapenko better uh, in a quarterfinal match. That, that's a very intriguing combination of possibilities to consider. And just to give uh, the due respect of uh, this uh, yesterday's winner, uh, Daria Gavrilova in uh, Connecticut, I was in the press conference uh, there, and she said she needed matches, and she's very hungry. And she's obviously young, so playing the week before the major is not a bad thing for many players. Uh, do you see her carrying on some of the momentum and challenge, uh, challenging Svitolina if they were to meet in the third round, or do you think she's going to run out of gas after winning five matches last week in Connecticut? Well, the uh, the reality of playing a bunch of matches is in one way softened because the major tournaments allow a day off every other day. But it's interesting that Svitolina has been uh, outstanding at the Premier 5 level this year with everyday tennis. And Svitolina has, on the other hand, struggled in major tournament tennis due to the, uh, well, to a lot of things, partly the pressure, but also because the rhythm is different. We're playing tennis every other day instead of every day. So a possible Gavrilova-Svitolina third-round match it would represent uh, a clash of two players, you know, trying to figure out the secret uh, to managing that every other day rhythm uh, at the majors. That that would be a fascinating uh, double drama uh, because both players would be in similar positions. Svitolina more in terms of the whole season, Gavrilova in terms of coming from New Haven uh, to the Open one week to the next. That that that. that would be a fascinating plot point to to uh, witness in that match if it comes to pass. Okay, so uh, let's advance to the next section, which has a, you know, I don't want to say perennial finalist, but that's what it seems like. Uh, Caroline Wozniacki uh, lives there, and this is probably as good a chance for her to uh, rest some of that, you know, uh, bridesmaid tag because she's lost uh, many big matches. It's hard not to think that Wozniacki will play Venus Williams in the fourth round, looking looking at their draws. I mean, Kai Kai Burdens, who is in Venus's uh, subsection, that could be a third-round match with Venus. Burdens has not played well on, on hard courts. Um, and as you said, that Lucic Baroni, who is in, who could play Wozniacki in the third round, has also been struggling. So... Uh, the one landmine for Wozniacki before meeting Venus uh, in the fourth round would be a Katarina Makarova in a possible second-round match. Uh, Makarova did have a very productive summer, Washington, Canada, Cincinnati. Uh, the main concern with her is, is she physically spent because she played a lot of tennis in a relatively short period of time uh, she needed multiple medical visits uh, in a win over Angelique Kerber in Cincinnati. Um, if, if she is able to regain her energy, you know, then a match with Wozniacki uh, could be difficult. But Wozniacki has been extremely consistent, and and we know with Wozniacki that uh, against a lot of big hitters, you know, she can defuse them because she can she can get balls back with depth. And she can uh, take away time from opponents just by continuously sending balls back uh, that opponents don't expect to come back. Uh, and, and she gains leverage in points that way. So ultimately, Wozniacki and Venus, uh, I, I would still be inclined to think that that matchup will happen in the fourth round. And given Venus's form... Uh, after making the Wimbledon final, um, I think it's the safer bet to think that Wozniacki, uh, with her fitness, uh, can, can win an attritional match. It, it's a match in which Venus would have to win in two sets. If it got to a third, uh, Wozniacki would have to be the favorite. So, on balance, I'd expect Wozniacki to get to the quarterfinals. Um, but, you know, Muguruza is standing in her way in that round if, if, uh, the Wimbledon champion is able to get that far. Wozniacki needs to root very, very, very hard for Muguruza to lose before the quarterfinal stage. Okay, so Muguruza, as again, we agreed is, uh, you know, a lot of people think, uh, she is, uh, the co-favorite, if not the favorite. Uh, how do you see other players like, uh, uh Caroline Garcia? I think, uh, 
to me, she has an opening here because Petra Kvitova hasn't been the same, and rightfully so. It may take her longer than expected. So Garcia could be waiting for Muguruza if things go well for Garcia in the round of 16. And is that a tricky matchup? Yeah. Yeah, I I would agree with your analysis on Kvitova that uh, it's not so much the mental side. I think a, a physical fitness component is more the the centerpiece in terms of her attempt to rebuild and why it's gone more uh, more slowly. Uh, I think that everybody, and I would include myself here, was caught up in her uh, title on grass in the in the warm up stage. Uh, before Wimbledon, and we didn't appreciate, I didn't appreciate, you know, the, the difficulty of being able to continue to go to the well again and again and again and to maintain that base of fitness, uh, which is needed to be a consistent force on tour. So yes, if, if Garcia and Kvitova did play in the third round, I'd be inclined to take Garcia, who has definitely made forward strides this season. And, uh, yeah, that just brings out Brings us to the concluding uh, section uh, of this draw, where uh, Joe Conta uh, lives at the top, and then it, uh, she she has a fairly easy, uh, or relatively easier path than some of the other seeds. And uh, at the bottom of it is Samana Halep against uh, the matchup of the tournament. So where do you want to start with? You want to start with Halep Sharapova, and then work your way up as we sure. start up the women's draw. Sure, and I think the main key in Sharapova Halep is simply that uh, Halep should be expected to win because of how long Sharapova has been away from the tour and also has been injured. Uh, Sharapova, the only way for her to win the match is that she needs to give Halep enough of a chance to lose it. You know that Sharapova needs to make Halep hit as many balls as possible. And, which means that Sharapova has to avoid making errors. And, and of course, given Sharapova's rust, we should expect a lot of errors. That's part of why Halep should win. But if Sharapova can play enough balls deep into the court um, that don't give Halep uh, an easy way to finish points, then Halep could flinch because the, the balance of this rivalry has gone to Sharapova in the past. Uh, Halep could certainly tighten up uh, and donate points in key games, key situations. But Sharapova has to keep Halep on the court long enough for Halep to flinch. Um, on, a very, on a very separate note, how do you think the New York crowd would welcome back uh, Sharapova after you know what she's gone through? Well, I wouldn't make any guarantees, but I'd be inclined to say that there will be an enthusiastic reception. You know, it'll be a it'll be a very ballyhooed match, and Sharapova thrives in that kind of environment, that an environment of hype and publicity, you know, she's very comfortable on the big stage. So I, I probably expect a favorable reaction, um, but even if it's not, I, I don't think Sharapova is going to be negatively affected by whatever's going on. It, it's more about Halep and her ability uh, to withstand that kind of circus atmosphere. Okay, fair enough. So let's uh, slightly stroll up the draw. And there's some decent matches, at least the potential of some good matches. One is uh, Inform, uh, Dominika Sivulkova, who uh, played the final yesterday in uh, Connecticut. She could run into Sloan Stephens in the second round. How do you see that match if that were to materialize? Well, Stevens has been a hot player. Uh, and and uh, not just a hot player, but a hot player against quality competition. Being able to win two matches in the same day uh, in Cincinnati and to make a semifinal and to take her ranking from close to 1,000 all the way into the top 100 in a relatively short period of time, uh, that's very impressive. It was It's worth noting that Stevens played Halep early in Washington before the Canada-Cincinnati double stack, and she lost the first set really close, uh, and then the second set was a blowout. And I think that match gave Stevens a really good mix. She was able to be competitive, but then uh, she realized in the second set how far she had to go to develop herself. So she really, she quickly learned uh, how to put the pieces together after that match, and I think that she's in, in good position uh, to get through the first week. I would like to add something, and correct me if you disagree. Uh, this is merely an assertion. What I've seen of uh, Sloan Stephen, I, I see uh, there's a player 
And a lot of time I see some guys in the ATP lack that. Stevens has a mindset of a top player, like someone like a Gulbis. You know, Gulbis is ranked 350. But when you, when you put him against Federer or Djokovic, he has a belief. He may not come through. And similarly, Stevens far more consistent than Gulbis. I think she has a mindset of, okay, I belong here, no matter if it's Serena Williams or Sharapova or Kerber, who's on the other side. Her results may not have, you know, been consistent uh, well, with, you know, the top-ranked players, but I, I just see a self-belief there which uh, sometimes is missing on a lot of the other girls. Uh, I don't know if you see similarly. You know, that's a still evolving point. I think that her, her talent and skill are, are extremely formidable. Uh, you know, she can hit hard. She can cover the court. Uh, she has a, 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 a diverse skill set. But in terms of her mentality, it's still an unresolved question because the, the high-end achievements in her career, we still haven't seen her climb a number of those mountains. And uh, it's readily brought up by a lot of commentators that, you know, when she made the Australian Open semifinals, Serena Williams, you know, was not feeling, was not in, in ideal health uh, when, when Sloan beat her uh, a few years ago. So it, it, it's, I, I see signs of what you described uh, is just, being able to see that over a full tennis season, a full calendar year, would give us a much better uh, affirmation of those points. So it, it's really a her career has a grade of incomplete right now, and it's it's too early to make any definitive judgments on how well she has or hasn't achieved. It's very much a work in progress, and hopefully the injuries will stay away long enough that we'll be able to get to see this story unfold in full measure. Right, last but not the, not the least uh, is Joe Conta. Uh, I'm still kind of on the bandwagon. I think uh, a great result is just around the corner. Uh, are you of the same opinion? And how do you view her draw and her chances? Well, it's interesting that a lot like Venus Williams, who beat Conta in the Wimbledon semifinals, Conta had a great Wimbledon and then came to the North American hardcourt summer and did not produce the same results. So her game is in a state of uncertainty at the moment, and it's worth noting that she made the semis in Australia uh, a year ago in 2016, but she hasn't yet gone deep at the U.S. Open. Now, it has to be said that entering Wimbledon, she didn't have a big Wimbledon result on her record, but she kind of checked that box off uh, by making the semifinals. So it could be that she'll be able to make another deep run at the Open. I think everyone would agree that she has the game to do it, uh, but it's just a matter of developing uh, more consistency on tour and and believing in herself enough that she believes that she can continue to replicate success. I mean, obviously her successes in Miami, winning that championship, were considerable. So in that sense, Conta has already climbed higher than a lot of other peers on tour. Um, but her, you know, the fact that she wasn't a mainstay on tour at age 20, 21, 22, 23, uh, it, it, it puts her in an interesting position in terms of how we categorize her, how we evaluate her. And she hasn't been at the, the, in the world of main draw tennis as long as a lot of her contemporaries. Uh, so it, it puts more of a cloud over her game. That's not a criticism of her game. It's more a matter of it's hard to predict where she is and what she's going to do. So who are your semifinalists? And if Conta does play Halep, who comes through? I would be inclined to pick Halep. And, uh, I, you know, they played a razor-close match at Wimbledon. I do think that the crowd, which did influence the final point of that match, uh, a fan yelled um, right near when uh, Halep was hitting her final shot out. Yeah. Um, the, the crowd certainly had an influence. They met in Cincinnati, and while Conta dictated a number of points, she made a lot of errors. Uh, I think a similar scenario uh, can and probably will unfold at the U.S. Open under those circumstances. Halep... Uh, though not yet able to knock the door down and win a major title, she has been a, a more consistent player at the major tournaments and has shown that when she experiences a big disappointment, she gets off the canvas 
and responds at the next tournament she plays. And I think that losing the final in Cincinnati to Muguruza, not getting the number one ranking, I think that's going to take pressure off Halep entering New York. Obviously, playing the Sharapova match in the first round, that could reintroduce pressure. But the good side is, assuming she does get through that match, and I reckon that she will, um, that could relax her for the for the fortnight, and all the things that she's working on with Darren Cahill can come to the forefront. I, I would give her a slight edge over Conta in a possible quarterfinal. Okay, and who's the other semifinalist from the Wozniacki and uh, Muguruza section? That's uh, I believe yeah. you're leaning towards Muguruza. Yeah, I would have to take Muguruza. Yeah, okay. she, she's she's demonstrated too much consistency to be doubted at, at this point. All right, Maguruta Halep in the semis, and then in the top half, uh, Svitolina and uh, Kerber section. Who's the semifinalist here? Yeah, well, Svitolina in Kerber's section and Kerber's quarter, and and uh, one could say it's Svitolina's quarter and Kerber's just there, and then Pliskova and Kuznetsova are in the other quarter, and I think Pliskova will come out of that one. Okay, so these are your semifinalists, and uh, that was... Uh, very insightful, Matt, and fun, and we kind of, uh, hopefully, we recorded a long one, and uh, people don't get bored out of, <laughs> because this was a deep analysis going through section by section. And, uh, yeah, we should do another one So It was fun talking to you, as usual. You are a source of great knowledge, and your support to this podcast is already, you know, something we really appreciate. Well, thanks for having me on, Sakib. I enjoyed it, and I always enjoy talking to you.